daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. The top leaders of China and Belarus have agreed to continue strengthening cooperation. China's central bank will wrap up support for the real economy and further guard against financial risks. Express delivery volume in China hits a new record of 120 billion in 2023. And the United States again dominates the global arms trade, contributing 51% of the global total revenue last year. You're all listening to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Ge Anna in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching Road Today. China and Belarus have agreed to continue strengthening cooperation. Chinese President Xi Jinping met his Belarusian counterpart Alexander Lukashenko on Monday in Beijing. The two leaders discussed trade, cultural exchanges, and industrial cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. They expressed willingness to enhance coordination and cooperation in multilateral platforms. The two sides also discussed the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Zhang Siren reports from Beijing. During the meeting, Chinese President Xi Jinping stressed that China is willing to continue to strengthen strategic coordination with Belarus, and the two countries will offer each other firm support and promote practical cooperation as they deepen bilateral relations. And President Xi also highlighted that China is willing to work with Belarus to strengthen coordination and cooperation within multilateral mechanisms such as the United Nations and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. He said that the two nations will promote promote the implementation of global initiatives in development, security and civilization to build a community with a shared future. Lukashenko said Belarus sincerely hopes that China will continue to develop, which will be conductive to the cause of peace and progress around the world. He said Belarus firmly believes that the joint implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative will truly build consensus and cooperation in the international community. That was Zhang Siren reporting. So to delve into the meeting and China-Belarus relations, joining us on the line is Dr. Cui Hongjian, professor with Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Cui. Hi. Professor, this is President Lukashenko's second visit to China this year. How do you view such frequent high-level interactions between China and Belarus? And what potential implications do these visits hold for the overall dynamics and development of China-Belarusian relations? I think this uh, uh, frequency of the uh, high-level exchange between those two countries uh, showcased that, uh, I mean, very close uh, relations uh, between China and Belarus. Uh, as we know, as we know now, uh, for these two countries, they do share some more and more common interests, not only in the economic and trade, and also on the uh, regional uh, cooperation to help the stability and the development. Uh, as we know, uh, since uh, last uh, September, uh, both China and Belarus uh, built up a, a kind of a world weather, uh, I mean, strategic partnership. I think it uh, uh, stepped a lot for these uh, bilateral relations. And uh, this uh, uh, much, I mean, the first uh, uh, visit by uh, President Lukashenko uh, in this year, I think uh, uh, both the countries uh, launched a joint statement and promised to uh, strengthen this uh, strategic partnership. I think it uh, gives, uh, I mean, a further development for the bilateral relations. So undoubtedly, I think that uh, because of the uh, uh, mutual demands for uh, development and also for, uh, I mean, common requests for this uh, uh, regional stability, uh, certainly now it's a very, very good uh, stage or uh, time for China and Belarus relations. Professor, speaking of common interests between China and Belarus, the two leaders talked about bilateral projects and industrial cooperation. Can you provide insights into the current status and the future prospects of key bilateral projects such as the China-Belarus Industrial Park? Yes, as we know, for this uh, cooperation, especially in industry projects, uh, both China and Belarus 
they do have a very good uh, traditions and also a good basis. Also, you know, not only in the frame of uh, bilateral cooperation, uh, now more important thing is in the frame of uh, BRI cooperation, both China and the Belarus, the uh, uh, shared common uh, principles and also they try to create more common interests, especially for this uh, cooperation in industry park. As we know, uh, for a long time, uh, the cooperation between two countries on industry park uh, provide an example or even a model for cooperation in the frame of BRI. So far, as we know, uh, not only for this uh, uh, investment and also for more and more industry cooperation on machinery, on the uh, uh, bio uh, uh, industry, and also uh, uh, commercial, uh, uh, electronic commercial, and also new materials, AI, and uh, 5G, and so, so many areas. And so far, as we know, this uh, 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 industry park uh, already attracted attracted more than uh, I mean, uh, 10 min, uh, I mean, more than 100 so, uh, million euro dollars, and of course, I think now uh, for both this uh, cooperation, not only for industry park, and they try to uh, find out some more potential in, for example, the digital and also uh, some more uh, international cooperation. Professor, cultural and people-to-people exchanges also highlighted in their talks. We've noticed many initiatives like regular cultural days, cooperation in education, health, sports, tourism, etc. How do these initiatives contribute to fostering mutual understanding between the people of China and Belarus? Are there any notable examples of successful exchanges in this area? As we know, uh to develop the bilateral relations, certainly the people-to-people and the society-to-society cooperation and exchange uh, play a more uh, important and also fundamental uh, role, uh, especially for China and the Belarus. Not only they do have some educational cooperation. Uh, for example, uh, we talked about the uh, uh, industry park itself. I mean, uh, provide some more job opportunity for uh, Belarusian people, and also they can have some uh, more uh, professional education. Uh, besides this um, uh, cooperation in professional education, and also both China and the Belarus, they do have some cooperation on uh, projects like uh, Confucianism uh, uh, Institute, and also the China, the Chinese, uh, I mean, uh, project or uh, education in Belarus also pro. Uh, play uh, a very important role to help these uh, people-to-people uh, communication and uh, mutual understanding. Professor, earlier when we talked about China-Belarus Industrial Park, uh, you mentioned the cross-border transportation facilitation. This also mentioned during the two leaders' meeting. Why this realm is specifically emphasized? How crucial is it to bilateral trade and economic relations between the two countries today? I think for this uh, transportation facilities or connectivities, uh, certainly, as we know, it's a very, very important part for this uh, BRI cooperation. And uh, I think it's a very natural uh, extending of this uh, cooperation between China and the Belarus on uh, economic trade. But of course, as we know today, even it has uh, some more significance to help this uh, regional uh, connectivity. Uh, yes, now we are living in a, uh, a time uh, with more and more uh, geopolitical tensions. So I think it should, uh, should uh, more importance for China and Belarus cooperation uh, to help not only on bilateral level and also on regional level to help some more uh, also in the connectivity. And I think once we have some more projects of uh, transportation and some, and some other uh, infrastructure, certainly, it will provide more uh, favorable environment, uh, mm-hmm. not only for both China and Belarus investors, and also for this uh, regional cooperation.
Speaking of collaborations on international level, apart from bilateral relations, the talks also touched on、uh, many international issues and challenges in the context of the discussions on Russia-Ukraine conflict. How do China and Belarus perceive their respective roles or potential contributions to the resolution of the crisis? Yes. Now, as we know, because of the、uh, Ukrainian crisis,、uh, it.、Uh, Give some、uh, negative impact, not only on the regional cooperation and also on the、uh, regional stability. So I think I, at this moment, as we know, it looks, looks like、uh, there will be a long time deadlock for、uh, Ukrainian crisis. I think it's time for China and Belarus they get some more coordination on the、uh, especially exchange the, the you know the views. On the current situation, and they, and then they also try to、uh, play more,、uh, play a more active role to help the situation. For example,、uh, I think for both China and Belarus,、uh, they try to find out some more political settlement for this、uh, crisis, and also they could have have some more cooperation not only on bilateral level and also in the frame of SCO and some other regional. Mechanism and、uh, to help the situation, especially,、uh, of course, to、uh, you know drop down any、uh, spillover effect from this uh, uh, crisis. Could you please elaborate more on the roles that China and Belarus play in international organizations like the United Nations and Shanghai Cooperation Organizations, as they talked about the global governance and multilateral mechanisms cooperation? Also, you know now、uh, for both China and Belarus, they do have a very, very good,、uh, I mean,、uh, basis or uh, fund, uh, fund funding for these、uh, bilateral relations. I think the mutual trust would be very important to support any kind of uh, uh, further cooperation on regional level and also on global level.、Uh, also, you know now, yes, there will be some more、uh, risks for uh, block uh, confrontation. And also for、uh, deglobalization and some other. So I think once China and the Belarus they share some more common interests and also they share some more common grounds, I think certainly it will provide some more stability,、uh, not only for a region and also for the、uh, global level. But of course, I think now、uh, it's a very important time for both China and Belarus. They should reaffirm some uh, uh, common. Uh, grounds on, for example, to support some international、uh, law and also international law. I think it's important for both China and Belarus to share some more common、uh, grounds. Once we have some this、uh, example or model, certainly I think it will give some more positive influence on some other regional countries. Mm-hmm. Professor, one last question back to China-Belarus bilateral relations. President Lukashenko expressed Belarus' perspective on China's development. He said Belarus sincerely hopes that、uh, China will grow stronger. Could you elaborate on this and how he perceives China's development to global peace and progress? For example, I think from uh, President uh, Lukashenko's views, uh, certainly uh, he had some more. Uh, positive views on China's、uh, development. I think it's not only from his own、uh, understanding, and also it's、uh, from the realities. As we know, China now、uh, is becoming a major player on、uh, regional and global affairs,、uh, including、uh, economic and trade, and also on the、uh, security governance. So I think now uh, this uh, Mr. Lukashenko's views. About China, it's just a reflection for more and more countries, especially、uh, developing countries. They do have some more expectation on China to play a more active role to help regional and global development. I think China、uh, is doing、uh, what he what it could do to help not only the economic recovery on the global level, and also China is、uh, implementing its.、Uh, Initiatives on development, security, and civilization to help、uh, more and more mutual trust between countries, and also to find out a more、uh, comprehensive, common, and also the cooperative 
security governance for the regional uh, level. So I think certainly it's just a showcase for this uh, uh, good labors and also good relations uh, between countries. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Professor Cui, for your time and insightful analysis. That's Dr. Cui Hongjian, Professor with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. China's central bank has pledged more efforts to sustain reasonable growth in credit and social financing as part of efforts to strengthen support for the real economy. People's Bank of China Governor Pan Gongsheng says the bank will enhance support for small and micro businesses as well as scientific and technological innovation. Currently, the loan balance in China's banking system exceeds 28 trillion U.S. dollars, and the balance of social financing exceeds 4 trillion dollars. The governor also stressed that China will actively participate in global financial governance and cooperation. For more on this and China's financial sector, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yao Shujie, Changkong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. So first, Professor Yao, how do you perceive the recent signals from the financial officials in addressing the financial risks and uh, promoting the effective financial regulations? Yeah, the Financial Authority of China um, is facing two major challenges. The most important challenge is to um, support the real economy, providing sufficient equity to all sectors of the market holders. Uh, particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises, and also the enterprises which focus on science and technological innovation. Uh, The other challenge is how to uh, manage the overall macro-level and regional-level financial risk. So there's always um, a a difficulty in between the two challenges. Uh, And in order to meet the, the two goals at the same time, I think the financial authority to uh, maintain the overall level of uh, liquidity in the market, but also have to maximize the efficiency of the credit and the financial support uh, provided to the market uh, holders. Mm. So this is this is the, basically the the essential uh, concern of the financial conference, uh, the meeting that we heard recently. Mm. And as you mentioned that China has been stressing that the finance should better serve the real economy and this year's Central Financial Work Conference called for more financial resources to support the small and micro businesses, science and tech innovations, advanced manufacturing and green development. So what does this tell us about the priorities of the country's economy? Yeah, three priorities you just mentioned. It doesn't mean that the other areas are not prioritized. Uh, the large and the large and uh, you know state-owned enterprises and the large enterprises in the private sector, they are relatively in a better of situation. But for the micro uh, level enterprises, the medium-sized and small uh, size enterprises, they are particularly more uh, difficult in getting finance, as always in the Chinese case. However, these sectors are the most important provider uh, for employment, tax income, uh, manufacturing, and also export. So to support the, the medium-sized and small-sized enterprises is really the top priority because if you provide sufficient and low-cost financial support to these enterprises, you will guarantee you know, steady uh, employment and also steady production for high-quality economic growth mm. targeted by the central government. And in terms of the, uh, you know, the green development, I think China is facing another uh, issue of how to uh, sustain economic growth while at the meantime uh, protect the natural environment. And the other sector which is targeted as the priority is science and innovation. Science innovation is uh, required time and also uh, face more risk than the than the other sector. This sector particularly is um, uh, good for the country in the future, but not in the short term. So mm. this is requires special uh, government support. So the government 
uh, focusing on the science and innovation is not just the short short term uh, challenges. It's actually the long term goal of sustaining China's high quality high quality economic development. Mm. And the latest financial conference also offers detailed plans to tackle the challenges. For example, on the housing market, it's urged to you know improve supervision, but also to meet the reasonable financing needs of the real estate enterprises of different ownerships without discrimination. So, what's your understanding of this statement? Yeah, this statement is made、uh, in the background of the Chinese、uh, market sector, you know, the housing sector. Which is certainly is experiencing a, a very unprecedented、uh, challenges after over two decades of very strong expansion. The the housing market is suffering in terms of、uh, you know, new investment in terms of、uh, bankruptcy of some、uh, large gigantic housing、uh, developing companies such as Hyundai and others. Now,、uh, it it is actually a turning point for the Chinese housing market. It means that. Some sort of housing boom in terms of、uh, price increases is probably over. So this, because of the housing boom and the house price increase is over, lots of investors are hesitant to putting more money into the market. So that requires some macroeconomy adjustment. This adjustment is twofold. The first is to make sure that the mainstream of the housing market is not collapsing. It's declining but not collapsing. Uh, the the other thing is that to make sure that、uh, during this、uh, difficult time, the basic need of the people, particularly the low income and the medium income people, they have to be met. Otherwise,、uh, these people will facing difficulty, and this is related to the financial issue. The financial issue: how to use the money、uh, more effectively to、uh, you know to achieve these two goals at the same time.、Mm-hmm. To stand the market, make sure that the The people in need also being supported, and this、uh, this require the the financial support that have to be balanced between the large sector and the and the private sector. So、uh, it shouldn't be discriminated because、uh, with、uh, with discrimination maybe extend a very long signal to the to the market holders. Now,、mm. without discriminating, it means that. Okay, the market holders, the house developers, and also consumers, they would have a, a clear direction from the central government. We are not left behind by the government. It, it, the government is trying every effort to stabilize the market and also、uh, at the same time to meet the basic needs of the people, so that the housing market would not become a burden of the economic growth, but also become, in the medium term, become、uh, continue to become an economic pillar. Mm. Uh, for China's、uh, economic development, and China remains a top destination for the global capital. The Chinese yuan was the second most used currency in the global trade and the finance market in September, surpassing the euro. So, what does this tell us about the overall trust in the yuan as an international currency?、Um, the the Chinese government and the Chinese financial authority have been very、uh, conscientious and very.、Uh, Pragmatical in terms of promoting the Chinese young、uh, internationalization, internationalization, and the first step for the Chinese young to be internationalized and to be used by foreigners、uh, is to use the currency for foreign、uh, foreign、uh, trade transaction. And as I say, China is the largest exporter and also the largest、uh, trader in the in the world. Obviously, China has the The home advantage of using the home currency.、Uh, China's market is much bigger and continue to be bigger、uh, than the EU put together. So,、uh, especially the eurozone. The euro, the eurozone doesn't actually cover the entire EU, but the Chinese economy is now already bigger than it. So, the economy size, China have the advantage. The other advantage is that the Chinese currency has been very steady. Actually, the fluctuation. If we're talking about the foreign exchange against the major currency in the world, which is the U.S. dollar,、uh, the Chinese currency has,、uh, you know, up and down,、uh, fluctuated. But the fluctuation, the extent of variation, is significantly smaller than the euro, than the sterling pound, than the Japanese yen. So this gives people 
gradually give people confidence that overall this emerging economy, uh, China, this emerging currency, is actually a trustable currency. And I think this is the starting point. It's not, not the end of the story. It's just a starting point. In the future, I'm sure the RMB will be more recognized and it will be emerging to become a very major uh, steady currency comparable to euro and the U.S. dollar. That was Dr. Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. You're all listening now is Road Today. Stay tuned for more engaging discussions on current affairs. This is Road Today with Mika Anna in Beijing. China has handled its 120 billionth express mail this year, setting a new record for its annual express delivery volume. The historic parcel of flowers was sent from Kunming to Chengdu on Monday. Bian Dong is with the State Post Bureau. He attributes the high volume to the country's economic recovery. China's market sales have grown more rapidly this year, accompanied by a rapid expansion in service consumption, demonstrating the unique advantages of our super-large-scale economy. It not only provides opportunities and space for the courier industry to play its supportive role better, but also offers potential opportunities and vitality for the sustained high-quality development of the express delivery industry. The monthly express delivery volume has been above 10 billion parcels since March, with an average business income of over 12 billion U.S. dollars. So to talk more about the new record of Chinese annual express delivery volume and its implications for the country's economic recovery, let's have Dr. Liu Zhiqing, senior fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Liu. Thank you. What factors do you believe have contributed to the significant increase in China's annual express delivery volume, reaching a record high of 120 billion? I believe that uh, there are so many good reasons that uh, to have such increase, but uh, in my opinion, they are mainly based on two factors. Mm-hmm. One is the fact that uh, uh, internal or domestic circulation has been really well managed and further developed. As we know that in the past months, that uh, the Chinese economy developed very st- uh, steadily, although increased in some uh, percentage. So compared to the global market, so the domestic circulation is very wealthy and sustainable. And the second reason is that the circulation extended with the global market. As we know, Belt and Road Initiative and other countries, including Russia, for instance, neighboring countries, also, the delivery express services have been well increased in the past months, especially during the first half and the second half of the year that we can see the, a great uh, tendency uh, of the export increase. So this is a very good reason that to have such a record high in delivery volume. The express delivery volume is sitting 100 billion for three straight years. How do you see this trend along with broader economic indicators? And of course, what kind of economic resilience vibes does it send about China's economic landscape? Yeah, that's true. That Because in the past three years, China's economy has been well developed, especially in a very stable and sustainable way. As we know that China has further strengthen its effort for green development. Also, we have more investment in the environmental protection, especially in the service industry. We have already made a great efforts and a great progress in servicing and in delivering industry. So we see that a big number of big statistic data, we can see a good reason for such a uh, increase or improvement in the past three years. For instance, the, the economic structure has been well uh, 
further, that especially when we see the Chinese economic resilience, that shows that the greater potential and also dynamic of this economy, especially for the private economy, has been well developed in rural areas. You will find that all the deliveries and also covers or most of the areas in in the country that there, there, there's no we, we call that there's no dead uh, dead uh, uh, lock or dead village that there's no delivery service at the moment that the delivery service have covered all corners in China so this is a very important improvement of our industrial structure Let's talk about delivery sector in rural area, because the latest China e-commerce logistic index for November is like the scorecard of the logistic world. So both the total business volume index and the rural business volume index reached new highs for the year, especially a rebound in the rural sector.、Uh, what's your take on the rebound? What role does rural logistics play in the overall e-commerce landscape? I think in order to get a better understanding in this question, I give you the two figures. For instance, for the employment rate in November, we can see 0.1 percent increase. This mainly comes from the rural areas, especially from the delivery industrial services. That the employment has been really greatly improved and increased. And secondly, we can see in November that the Supply or delivery uh, uh, services time that has been increased. This index is over fifty point three percent. Also increased zero one zero point one percent. That the delivery time index is quite important factor that to show and to make a judgment of this、uh, economic and logistic index. So in this way that we can see the mainly the part of this.、Uh, Uh, well, that developed rural areas have more、uh, delivery requests and demand. That means the demand for areas have been really increased. From other side, we can see consumption trend in rural areas has been well developed. It's a good. This is a good potential for us. Mm-hmm. Let's shift gear to the tech innovations in this sector, because the development of China's logistic industry gives people the feeling that there will be new breakthroughs every two or three years.、Uh, one recent news that impressed me the most is the integration of some high-tech robots or driverless delivery vehicles. There is an increasing number of deliveries being handled by such technologies. Can you elaborate on how this? Breakthrough is changing the landscape of the delivery industry in China. I think this、uh, drive or this、uh, effort in the high-tech、uh, delivery sections、uh, will play more important role in the delivery industry, in the service industry. But、uh, as a general、uh, situation or landscape of the delivery industry, this is only one part of the less than ten percent of the business. Because, for instance, the robot driverless delivery service can be only done that in a good road conditions, and also, for instance, within the hotels, within the office buildings, that with good layout of the buildings and the way guidance. So, in this way, that this is only for special areas, not for general conditions. But this is a good tendency for. All this delivery that we can do something more for technologies、uh, uh, innovation, especially when later on we can have more joint that to deliver some things for the delivery remote areas.、Mm-hmm. So by this uh, uh, non-pilot uh, uh, joints that we can do something more from、mm-hmm. the air and from the earth, from both sides we can have well.、Uh, Connection net that to deliver all goods wherever that people need. Let's also venture into the global arena.、Uh, businesses expanding their horizon with new cross-border routes. Take Russia, for example. The report mentions a faster delivery time of just three days to reach the entire territory. How does this improved delivery time impact the competitiveness of Chinese products in the international market? As we know that in recent years, because of some 
special government from Western countries that they have more protectionism than also some tough efforts and measures that to control the import from China. So this is something that negative impact. But for some developing countries, especially for BRS countries and also Russia and also the neighboring countries, they need more products from China. So in this way that China's products have more quality, has good uh, after-sale services, and also prices still remain very uh, reasonable and acceptable by the the world global consumers. So in this way that the delivery express services is welcomed by the uh, global consumers, especially for those developing countries that really need a lot of uh, the product from China. As a you know, I just came back from Europe, so I saw many markets or some consumers that are still waiting for deliveries from China. They are uh, they like that some Chinese models and Chinese quality, especially for some new products from China. So in this way, that the China's products are, and the industry has really good uh, potential, good future, and uh, well more chances and opportunities to come out. Uh, from China with the global market. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dr. Liu, for your time and insights. That's Dr. Liu Jiting, Senior Fellow with the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Remy University of China. Chinese law experts and scholars gathered in Beijing for a seminar commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's renowned as one of the world's most groundbreaking global pledges. Experts emphasize the need of promoting the spirit of the declaration in specific view of new challenges arising from current regional conflicts. They also share their perspectives on China's progress in human rights affairs, including topics such as poverty alleviation, gender equality, and juvenile protection. So to talk more on the seminar and China's progress in human rights affairs, let's bring in Mario Covalo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group, senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. Thanks for joining us, Mario. Thank you, Anna. Always great to be back. Uh, first of all, um, the experts highlighted the challenges regarding the promotion of the spirit of the declaration, especially in the face of emerging hurdles from ongoing regional conflicts. Do you share the same stance? From your perspective, uh, what do you believe is the most significant human rights issues facing the world today? You know, I really appreciate the way you asked the question, uh, because uh, you're asking the question in the right way, the professional and diplomatic and polite way. But the truth of the matter is, is that my stance is that there's no polite answer to this. Um, the, the the biggest affront to human rights right now um, is what we see from countries like Israel with the full support of the United States and also uh, EU leaders who feel that Somehow they want us to know and think and believe that they're the good guys, and yet they are committing the worst affronts at all, uh, worst affronts of all, of all, um, in terms of human rights, slaughtering children. Uh, in the last few weeks, uh, you know, what's been like over 10,000, 11, 11, 12,000 children and their mothers uh, uh, slaughtered, literally just killed in just the last few weeks um, in Gaza by Israeli forces. And, that is 100% funded by the United States and done by bombs provided by the United States. Now, I don't know how they want us, the world, because the, the, the Declaration of Human Rights is to say human, right, human rights. Well, I, I think the, the right to be human starts with the right to be alive if you're an innocent child. You see what I mean? So I'm, it's very, we're in a very, very disturbing and dark moment in the history of the world. And many people even are traumatized by this. Even with all the problems we are facing today as a group, but human rights have long been a topic of American and Western attacks on China with many false and biased reports. Could you shed light on what you consider to be authentic human rights development in China over the past decades in general? 
as you've been living in China for a long while, right? You you know when I I think about this particular point of view in terms of human rights and as you mentioned uh, a lot of the uh, we can say false accusations a lot of the propaganda toward China um, I think immediately of the situation in Xinjiang where they talk about how oh China is supposedly you know committing genocide which is obviously human rights violation against uh, the Uyghur people of, of of Xinjiang however number one we won't. Now go into the fact that that's just completely untrue, but we'll go beyond that. I want to go beyond that to human rights and specifically to women's to women's rights, mm-hmm. because we have a situation, um, and we'll talk more about it later in the show, where we talk about women's rights and and how uh, the equality between men and women, which, which is very good in the United States, and again, I mean in, here in China, and we'll again we'll mention it. We'll talk more about that later. But right now, I want to say. That here is China facing uh, Muslim extremist violent terrorism, and China's solution is to say, okay, we need to identify and detain as many of those people as we can and do our best to employ re-educating them. Wow, that, that, that's really interesting, because the United States' way of dealing with Muslim extreme, extremist violent people is to just simply go in and bomb them with drones by drone bombing them and just just slaughter them, kill them, destroy them. Uh, so again, which I'll I'll leave it to the listener to decide which is a more humane way of approaching human rights. Mario, could you share some more specific and concrete examples of human rights progress in China that you have observed and impressed, but have been inaccurately reported or misunderstood by Western sources over the years? How do these examples contribute to a more understanding of China's efforts in the realm of human rights? To you, yeah, it, it's a great question. Talking about more clearly understanding what. What China's all about, what Chinese society and and the, the the CPC is all about when it comes to human rights. And again, the example that popped into my head today, as I was thinking about the show, was more and more about women,、mm-hmm. not just about women's rights, but women's rights in terms of and in relation to the value of marriage and family in society. Okay, so for example, we talk about.、Uh, Uh, human rights, and we move on to talk about, for example, say domestic abuse, human rights,、uh, or women's rights. And there's always that that feminist activist uh, uh, theme, which says, you know, women women get abused and used、um, by misogynist men、um, in society, and we need to protect women. Well, so again, I go back to two situations, two examples. One is the Xinjiang situation, and two is. China's upholding of the value of marriage and family.、Mm-hmm. Both of these uphold human rights. So in Xinjiang, you have Uyghur extremists, Muslims. They're violent. They treat women like property, like chattel in a cage. And so here is China trying to re-educate them to treat women better. And where are all the feminists to compliment China for this effort? Where is where where are the, all the governments to compliment China for this? Because they're they're trying to improve women's rights. You know, and then in marriage and family, same thing. You know, China is wanting very much. Pat just passed new recent、uh, reforms and laws to uphold laws to preserve, to avoid divorce, to preserve marriage and family. This is very important, especially for women with children. Indeed, Mario. From a broader perspective, many experts emphasize the importance of inclusiveness, exchange, and mutual learning of civilizations in the context of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But this appears to differ significantly from the Western perspective, which often emphasizes a singular universal value. How do you perceive such differences? When I think about this question, this idea of mutual learning and development between all ethnicities and all countries, I want to go back to two weeks ago. I was I had the pleasure of being invited to be one of the speakers at the Shoumao Basa Hoping Youyou Lintan. So this was the Basa piece, which of course is the name of the famous panda, Basa、uh, Peace and Friendship Forum, which was held uh, uh, about two weeks ago in. Do Zhang Yan, and of course the focus was to talk about peace and the value and importance of peace. So, what do we have with China in terms of human rights? Human rights 
is societal rights. Societal rights is sovereign rights. And sovereign rights is the right for any country to be able to develop in peace without being threatened, coerced, or bombed. Now, let's look at China in that regard. Let's go back to Xi Jinping. Two weeks ago, what did he say in, in San Francisco at the APEC conference? He made it very, very clear to the business owner, to the business executives of the most powerful countries in the United States. He said, we will not engage in Cold War or hot war with any other nation. So here's China engaging peacefully for decades. They've never dropped a bomb on, started a war with, or attacked any other country since the founding of the country in 1949. And so developing in peace across the world with over hundreds of other countries uh, that's a pretty good example of human rights as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mario. Appreciate your insightful analysis. That's Mario Cavallo, founder and CEO of M Communications Group and senior fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. The United States has again dominated the global arms trade last year as American companies contributing 51% of the total revenue at $302 billion U.S. dollars. This comes from the annual report released by the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. It says sales of weapons and military services by the world's top 100 arms makers totaled around $600 billion U.S. dollar last year, marking a year-on-year decline of 3.5%, but still 14% higher than the total recorded in 2015. The report attributes the global decline to reduced revenues among leading U.S. weapon producers, where the sector struggled with supply chain issues and labor shortages. But despite this setback, the think tank anticipates a substantial future revenue surge, citing a notable uptick in undelivered orders and new contracts, suggesting a potential significant increase in the earnings of these military companies in the upcoming years. To delve into the report and the global trend of arms sales, joining us now on the line is Kamal Makili Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Rawal Wollenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Thanks for joining us, Kamal. Thank you for having me. Uh, given the report's findings on the decrease in sales for the world's top 100 military companies in 2022, how do you anticipate these trends and its impact on the global military industry in the coming years, considering the expected increase in undelivered orders and new contracts? Well, a lot of going to depend on if the military uh, producing companies will be able to uh, make their production much more robust uh, and also um, much more prompt. Uh, those two factors are going to define what we're going to see in, in the coming years. Uh, but it's already now for the short term, it's quite clear that they will not be able to do that um, uh, in the next uh, two to three years. Why is that? It's because, as we can see, the the revenue is declining exactly because the contracts are piling up, Mm -hmm. meaning that there is much more demand for it, but they are not able to speedily enlarge the production. Uh, There is uh, a shortage of workforce, a huge shortage of workforce. Um, There is also problems with acquiring the necessary materials. There is a problem with logistics. There's a lot of those kind of problems that have been there um, for both subjective and objective reasons. Subjective reasons being uh, post-pandemic period of time, uh, the problems with the logistical network, but there's also a huge shortage of hands to uh, produce weaponry. And that is connected to um, how the industry actually is working with its workers uh, or with its contractors and that industry, the military production industry, has a very, very bad um, uh, record of uh, labor rights. And this is uh, the reason why a lot of of times you cannot really find um, a competent work. The workforce that you need requires a, a certain level of competence. And those kind of skilled workers are very reluctant to take up the jobs like that because they know the history of the labor right violations, especially when we talk about a little bit more capitalistic approach um, 
to uh, the military production in the countries such as United States. So it makes uh, this very difficult uh, for the companies to uh, become attractive uh, for, for enlargement of the workforce. And mm -hmm. all these factors, of course, contribute to the shortage. The United States has again dominated the global arms trade last year. What role does the U.S. military industrial complex play in such piling demands and in shaping global geopolitical dynamics, in your opinion? I think this is a much debated question. <clears throat> if uh, those kind of um, military production lobbies can actually uh, change the geopolitical landscape globally, they certainly can do that locally. That is that is a proven fact. The research shows that the military lobbying local um, scenes uh, can uh, create the demand, sometimes unnecessary demand for the production, and thus uh, raise the revenues of the uh, military military equipment producing companies or arms producing companies. But on the global scale, this is yet to be confirmed because the the studies that are showing sometimes um, quite opposite results. Uh, the ones where the, where the correlation between the military arms production and warfare is increasing and the ones where it actually decreasing over time, depending on which kind of factors you would uh, put into the study. If it is a little bit a longer term study, we can actually see that the military production is lagging behind over time and we can see the results of it uh, right now. Uh, but if we concentrate on decades, for example, uh, one decade or another decade, and compare them, then we can see that the, the, the you know, the conflicts correlate, the, the number of conflicts correlate with increase in the military production. So it's not yet uh, defined or decided by scientific method. Um, if uh, it's true and the military lobbyism and the military arms production can change the geopolitical scale towards conflict or if it actually is reactive towards the conflict that is uh, conflicts that are happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Then how do you foresee the ongoing conflicts like the Ukraine crisis and the Gaza crisis, uh, these conflicts shaping the trajectory of the global military industry? That is a great question. And here on the short term scale, there is a possibility to say that, of course, <clears throat> these conflicts that uh, have um, basically exploded in the face of the world right now um, are uh, creating um, a demand for ammunition and weapons and military equipment and everything connected to that. But we also can see that that demand far outpaces the capabilities uh, of the military producing producing companies. And in the short term, we can, uh, of course, expect that this demand is going to be dominating the agenda. Uh, however, because we can also see that the military production of the world cannot uh, meet that demand uh, in the short term, we need to understand that uh, this uh, lag or, the, um, if, you, if you will, uh, this protracted demand that it cannot be met by the production is going to, uh, to come to us in the foreseeable future. That means that the companies will either have to <clears throat> change their ways on how they approach the demand uh, or they'll be lagging behind uh, for a con uh, conceivable future. The, the problem here is that um, uh, in this short term uh, variation, we will not be able to, uh, to say if that um, strife of the companies to meet the demand. Indeed. Thanks, Kamal Makili Aliyev. That's all the time for this edition of World Today. Bye for now.